Galatians 2, 15 through 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Thank you. Good morning. It is so good to be with you, as you should have already. Your Bible's open to Galatians chapter 2. Uh, this is a, a, an immensely important, beautiful passage. Uh, we're going to spend some time in it this morning, but before we dive into it, I want to pray one more time. So pray with me, would you please? Heavenly Father, thank you once again for this day. Father, we are so grateful that we get to uh, hear your word read, and then we get to dive into it and hear what you've actually got to say to us. Holy Spirit, I pray today, uh, more than anything, that you would help me, uh, you would help us be people who are hearers of the word, truly hear your word. I pray, Father, that today these words that Paul wrote but also preached, Father, I pray that they would change us, that they would literally transform us, especially, Lord, our view of who you are and what you have done for us, because it is outstanding. So we acknowledge you, and we thank you, and we love you deeply, and we ask your blessings upon us in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. I got a question for you. Have, have you ever read a screenplay? Like, have you actually ever read a movie script, gone online, or anyone ever given you a script because you're a potential movie star, and, and you've read a screenplay? Well, well, I did. A long, long, long time ago, I did, and then a guy by the name of George Lucas stole my idea that I had for a movie. But, but really, I did, and the reason why I did that is I had an idea. I had an idea for a script, for a movie. It was, it was bad, trust me, so it never happened, which is a good thing. Um, but here's what I found out when I, when I read the screenplays. I was amazed, actually. I had no idea. You know, I thought it was like the book, right? Which, of course, no movie is like the book, which is bad. But I'm reading the screenplay, and I'm realizing, wow, the, the details that the writers put into the screenplays about everything from the curtains to the setting to the age to the, the, the way people are dressed to the nuances of the characters, you know, like there's a, there's a line that they say, and then in between there's, there's a wind coming from the left side of the room or whatever. I mean, they give all these details and nuance. And so the idea is, is when the director and, quite frankly, those who are actors in the play, when they get the screenplay, they, they can get an idea of where the screenplay writer wants this to go. And so you, you can see how it's going. And, and it, it's helpful, obviously, if you're going to act in this, this movie that you know what the story is supposed to be about and how things are supposed to look and feel. You know, I think oftentimes when we read Scripture, and especially passages like we're reading today, we, it, 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 we fail to see the scene. We fail to see what's going on in the story because the narrative oftentimes just doesn't give it to us. It doesn't, as an aside, say, oh, and by the way, and, and, and this is what 
Peter looked like and Paul looked like. We don't get that. And, and yet, without imposing on the text, we, we can find ways to see that in the story historically. And that's why when people prepare sermons or teaching in the Bible, they go into historical records. They look at other passages of Scripture, try to get a feel, and then, and then present that to you. This is really important today. And that's why I make that point. It's really important that we do that today because Paul is going to get really technical with us. He's going to get quite theological with us, right? And, and without a good grasp of the setting and the players and what's actually going on, I think we can lose a connection to the story and therefore to its actual meaning for us today. And what we could end up with are really good verses then end up on fridge magnets, but don't really change us, don't really do anything for us. So we got to go a little deeper. And so I want you to be patient with me as we do that, because I think it'll really help us as we look at what Paul's trying to say. And so our passage today is actually a continuation from really what we were reading last week, um, and not just in text and thought. Some of your Bibles might have had in verse 14, I think it is, or maybe 15, I can't tell, but there's quotation marks, and then they're not there anymore. And I just want to make sure you understand, those quotation marks are not in the original Greek. The translators, and some of your Bibles will put the quotes in, and they'll go, well, that was Peter actually speaking to, probably Paul actually speaking to Peter, but then the rest of it is just theological dialogue. I don't think so, and and most commentators would agree that this is Paul still dressing Peter down. He confronted him to his face, right? We read in the previous verses, because he, he, he was becoming a hypocrite. He had pulled away from the dinner table that he was at. And so we saw that what had happened at the end of the day last week was that the room was divided. The church was divided. There were actually two tables now. There were, there were all these Gentiles sitting at the one table that Peter had left because he was a hypocrite, because the James gang, the people from Jerusalem, the Jewish brothers had come into the room. And he's like, well, I can't be, oh, I can't be seen with them anymore. And he goes to be with them. So there's a division in the church. And so Paul confronts Peter rightly, I want to suggest, He did the right thing. Why? Because the gospel's at stake. Because it's the very gospel that's at stake. Not only in the early church, but any time the gospel is at stake, this is what leaders need to do. We don't like that in the church. We want to all get along and everybody be happy and don't say anything about that preacher over there who's preaching another gospel. Well, it has to be done. Somebody's got to do it. Otherwise, how do we know where the truth is? So let's set the stage. First of all, the scene is Antioch, this great city. We we see the Gentiles at a table. I want you to picture this. There's a table over here with a bunch of Gentiles at it, and they're they're still sitting at the table, kind of shocked at the table that Peter had walked away from. And so I want to ask the question, are they just a nice group of Christians, you know, the kind of people that you'd find, you know, somewhere in the southern United States at a typical Baptist potluck? I mean, is that what the table looks like to you? It isn't. I actually like that at all. It is. Did someone just say no? That was awesome. I love interaction. That's great. It, it, it isn't at all. They're actually a very mixed lot, racially, uh, culturally, socially, and economically. This is very cosmopolitan Antioch. Now, just imagine a little bit smaller New York City. It's about 500, 600,000 people at that time. Uh, At that time, it was also a major hub for the trade industry. It was the beginnings of the Silk Road. It was a hub. People from all over the world came to Antioch in those days. 
And so we need to see the picture. The people Peter was eating with were actually much like the people that Jesus used to eat with, right? What ended up getting him accused of being, what, a drunkard? And, you know, who did he eat with? Well, he eat with a bunch of sinners. And so listen, I think we need to see that what's at this table, this Gentile table, not only racially, culturally is quite diverse, but we've got some fishermen, right? We've got some lowly, you know, common laborers. Uh, We've probably got a few prostitutes or maybe ex-prostitutes, hopefully. We may have some craft beer drinkers, right, to excess maybe previously. Tax collectors, liars, thieves, etc. Listen, these are Gentiles. That's who is at this particular table. In other words, sinners. And here's the really good news about that table. The really good news about the people at that table is they all knew they were sinners. There was no argument on that table. They knew exactly who they were. No problem. They knew they were the unclean ones. Well, how did they know that? Well, at the same time in history, Antioch was actually a hub for maybe 100 to 150,000 Hellenistic Jews. So the, the synagogue, the Jewish people were quite well represented in Antioch at that time. And so the Gentiles in Antioch knew knew full well how they were perceived by the Jewish elite in that community in that day. Why? Well, because there was a huge economic divide. The Gentiles, for the most part, were from the poor side of the tracks. They were from, you know, downtown east side of Vancouver. That's where they were from. And then, of course, there's the Kitsilano and Carisdale and the west side of Vancouver, right? And that's where most of the Jewish people live. They, they look different, they dress different, they smell different, and they just were different. You see, the Gentiles all knew this as well. The people of Israel had God. That was well known. They were the ones who had God. They had Moses and all the prophets. They had Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had the law, right? Because they told us what was right and what was wrong from the Ten Commandments and all the laws. They had that too. And all the Gentiles knew that. They were God's chosen people. They were, we aren't. Well known, well established. Gentile table, Jewish table in the church. This is what was going on in that day at that time. And it's devastating. So you've got the great unwashed, right? You've got the great unwashed at this potluck dinner. You've got the unclean Gentiles. And then over here, you've got the uber-religious, the uppity, self-righteous, and quite frankly, antiseptically clean Jews. They're there. So finally, let's go back to Peter just for a second. Because before he leaves this table, what's, what's going on? They, the Jewish brothers from, from Jerusalem, the, the James, the leader of the church at that time, haven't arrived yet. And so he's having a good old time at this table. Why is that? Well, you know, I, I think part of it is like he's, he's thinking, isn't God great to save even people like this? This is awesome that God would do this. He's saving people like this. I mean, Peter had seen the Holy Spirit fall on these people. They were speaking in tongues earlier in Acts that he had seen this happen. And he's like, isn't this awesome? Aren't I at the same time lucky to be able to be eating with these kind of people? Oh, God is so good to me to put me in a place where I get to be with people like this. Because I get to see, you know, I mean, they're so real and authentic. There's no facade or play acting going on here. Just real sinners who knew that there was nothing they could do to save themselves. 
Nothing whatsoever that they could do. Since they were so far gone, let's face it, that it was all God's mercy and grace, all Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection that has saved them. Man, they're grateful people. And Peter's like, this is so refreshing. I love being with these lowly, poor Gentiles. Their testimonies are incredible. Oops. There's the James game. See, I, I think we need to see the table that way. Because that's what's going on here. Peter, Peter's with a, a very diverse group of people who were Gentile sinners. In that day, that's how they look. But I think we can also stretch it a little bit and think about how we might see people today and how we separate from tables today. So in today's passage, Paul starts getting all theological and technical on us. As I said, he drops a few words. He's going to drop a few words that have significant meaning biblically and theologically and practically. And so it's important that we understand the terminology if we want to understand the passage and, frankly, the gospel. I mentioned early on in the series that 500 years ago, a man by the name of Martin Luther uh, began the Reformation, right? He was a, a Catholic monk, and he rebelled against the Catholic Church at that time. Why? Well, for a number of reasons. Uh, the Holy Spirit probably prompted him, but there was also these things called indulgences going on where the Catholic Church was, a, you know, it's a long story. I won't get into it because we could be there for a while. I'm an ex-Catholic, raised Catholic. I, I can tell you about it later. But he was rebelling against that. He's going, this is not right. It's not biblical that we're getting people to pay, to get people out of purgatory. On and on it goes. And so he decided to start studying his Bible. He poured over his Bible, and he found Galatians. And he found the letter to the Galatians, and it hit him. It hit him. He was the first one at that time in the late 1500s, 1600s, to come up with the idea that justification, how we are made right with God, is by faith alone, in Christ alone, nothing else. Well, how did that happen? I mean, he describes in his memoirs that he just poured over the gospel. He poured over Paul's writings. For like two years, he was praying over it, pouring himself into it. And, and, and he kept saying, writing in his memoirs, you can read them online. He's, I can't grasp the gospel. I couldn't grasp it. I couldn't get my hands around it. I couldn't understand it. This guy's a monk. He's been one for 20 years. He conducts masses. He'd known the Bible. He'd known who Jesus was. He then wrote this. He said, I labored diligently and anxiously to how to understand Paul's word, singular, in Romans 1.17, where he says, for in the gospel, look at this, the righteousness of God is revealed. He then says, this is incredible, that when he finally grasped it, when he finally grasped the gospel, he was reborn. His own, his own words. What does that mean? That means that this monk, who was a Catholic, got saved. Friends, the most important thing that I think we need to understand here today is that we need to grasp the gospel. We need to grasp the gospel. And I need to ask you this question. Has this ever happened to you? Have you ever felt like, hey, hey, here's the deal. I... I I've been to Sunday school, I've been going to church for a little while, and as far as I know, I mean, the bottom line is pretty simple, right? The gospel is Jesus died on the cross for your sins, right? It's simple. I'll buy that. It's good. It's simple. But the question is, has the simple gospel you say you believed, has it actually transformed you? Have you had to struggle long and hard to grasp it, to get your hands around it, get your head and your heart around the gospel? Let me just say this. 
If you are struggling to grasp the gospel, to get your head and heart around it, then the power has become real to you. It has become totally real to you, and you are being transformed. We're going to learn about justification today, but there is a process called sanctification, which is a lifelong process of being transformed. But the only way that happens is if we continue to struggle with the gospel, because we need it. We need it desperately. And so if it hasn't happened, let me be very clear. Maybe you need to start struggling with the gospel. That's exactly what Paul, what the Holy Spirit, I think, wants us to do today. Struggle with the gospel. That's what we've been doing as we've been in this book for some time. That's what we should be doing in small group, and we are. And and yes, we should have questions, and we should have things that we want to... But it's the gospel, guys. It's about the gospel. Has it changed you? Are you being transformed by it? Are you struggling with the gospel? You should be, because it's not that simple. It's precious, it's beautiful, but it's not that simple. So the first word we need to look at today is found actually in our last verse. So we need to go to verse 21 first, and it's the word righteousness. I want to show you three things today in this message. Why we need righteousness, number two, how we receive righteousness. And thirdly, some objections that Paul receives and some answers to this whole question. So verse 21 says this, I do not nullify, and this is why we need righteousness, the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. So I think this is one word that most of us, when we hear it, it's like, that is so old. It's like, open your Bibles and go, righteousness, right? We we whiz right by it, we hear it, we go, "Uh uh uh-huh, uh-huh, that's God, it's righteous, we need to spend time understanding these things. I think if we were just to condense that word a little bit, shorten a little bit, and just like ask anyone outside the church and anyone inside the church, what does it mean to be righteous? To start with that word, I think most people would say, well, it means to be good. Like, good. <laughs> to be good. And that's true. It is. But then let's dive into it. Let's ask this. Do you ever feel, has anyone in this room ever felt like you're not good enough? Come on. Put your hands up. Has anyone ever made you feel like you're not good enough? (laughs) Hands, yes, of course, should be many. Yes, this is very true. The sad thing is that for most of us, myself included, we actually don't need someone else to make, make us feel like we're not good enough. We do it enough on our own, don't we? It's constant. I'm not good enough. I've not been good enough. I'm not doing enough. Because this enoughness is really... A crazy thing. And, and, and here's the deal. This is our greatest need as human beings, I want to suggest to you today. Righteousness. It's our greatest need. It's also our biggest problem. It's our biggest problem. So think about it. You and I, all of us, spend a lot of time trying to appear righteous. Do we not? Okay, look. I'm not going to keep pointing at you guys. I do. I constantly want to either feel right or be seen to be right or at least to be seen to be good and righteous in the way that I live and what I'm doing and what I'm for and what I'm not for. In every area of life, it seems like we all have this burning desire to be righteous or to be seen to be righteous. We need to be, make up you know, for our feelings of not being good enough by being righteous. Do you get it? Do you understand that, where that goes? So how do we seek to be seen as righteous? Well, obviously, one of the most common areas is the area of social justice. I mean, again, I'm, I'm on Facebook. Some of you know that that's too much, according to my wife. 
But I'm also a news junkie, and I'm constantly reading blogs and articles. And, and again, this week as I'm preparing this, it's un, it's, and I'm not, I'm not trying to judge people. Listen, there are social justice issues. Hear me. Everything that I'm going to mention this morning, these are good things. There's lots of good things going on here, things that we should be for. But if we are looking for our righteousness in these things, that's a problem. And if we are thinking we're righteous because we're for these things, look at me, look what I said about this, look what I'm writing about this, therefore I'm righteous, that's a problem. That's a problem too. So we herald the right causes, of course, don't we? You know, taking the moral high ground, whether it has to do with the environment, that's a biggie. I'm all for it, yes, yes. But, you know, again, I'm righteous because I'm for this and I'm against that. And that extends, of course, to the care of the oceans, the rivers, the trees, and, of course, nature's most at risk, the animals. In the water, on the earth, and in the air. I have some relatives, I love them dearly, but everything is about dogs or cats. Please don't anyone take this the wrong way. I have a dog. I love doggies, okay? But there is a point at which, you know, we are being seen as being righteous because we are so for them. We are so looking. And it it just, it goes everywhere into politics, rights and freedoms, crime and punishment. Let's not forget our personal issues like, like health choices, the foods that are good versus the ones that are bad, traditional medicine versus natural and ancient medicines. And on it goes. Virtually every one of us in this room here today has a set of righteous values on virtually every one of these things that I've been talking about that we present to the world that help us feel better enough, don't they? Because we're behind those things. There, there are forms of righteousness. A very good example of that is, and listen, I just want to be careful when I say this because I'm not picking on people like this, but, you know, it would be people who are vegan, Right? And I, I like to go there because I'm a Mediterranean personally, and so I can't understand this choice. But people who are vegan, they're very, you know, like they're making a choice, it's good. But some of them, you know, can be like very, very religious about it. And of course, the whole idea is I have to tell you about it's not eating the flesh of an animal because that's bad. And on and on they can go, right? But then there's also the health benefits, you know, because veg- vegetables and all the rest of it are so much better for us. And, you know, on and on. All the negatives, all the positives, and then, of course, It's not just good for the animals, but it's good for us as humans. At the end of the day, this choice also satisfies at least temporarily our righteousness bucket, doesn't it? For some it does. What's yours if it's not being a vegan, right? What's yours? What's your big thing where you're filling your righteousness bucket with on a daily, weekly basis? Maybe monitor that this week or go back through your Facebook feed and see what it is, right? At the end of the day, we're all still going to be hungry for more, pun intended. We're not good enough yet, are we? So we've got to keep filling that bucket. So here's the point. All of us, every human being, seems to have this great need. This desire to be right or to be on the right side, to be righteous, which again begs the question, why? Why do all of us have this universal need? Now, of course, some people are going to go, well, it's evolution. It's just natural selection. You need to have it. You need to have it because, you know, I'm going to say a flat-out no here on that one right now uh, simply because it's clear why we have this. It's because we're created in the image of a holy and righteous God. It's the Imago Dei that's resident in you and in me that we have this need, this desire to be righteous. This is true for all of us. Righteousness is what we need. 
We need it. We want it, and we desire it. And again, I have to ask the question, why? Why do we need it so badly? Here's the answer. It might be shocking to you. Because we don't have it. Zero. None of us have any righteousness. Read Romans 3. It'll devastate you. Paul's writing where he quotes the psalmist that says, None is righteous. No, not one. Friends, that's hard for our culture today, isn't it? Is that hard for you? This is the gospel. Got to get our hands around it. Got to grasp it. We don't have it. The righteousness that we all really desire is to be perfectly right with ourselves, with our world, with each other. Awesome. And there's the problem. We can never be right with any of these, any of those, until we are right with whom? With God. Here's uh, something you might want to keep or tweet. The righteousness we need but don't have is found in a right relationship with God. That's where we have to go. That's what Paul's pointing us to. That's what the gospel points us to. That's our greatest need as human beings. So once again, this was the point of the clean ceremonial laws that God gave to the Jewish people, this whole table setting thing. That's what it's all about, the clean versus the unclean. By trying to make ourselves clean, good enough to be in God's presence, we come to the obvious conclusion, or we're supposed to, that we cannot do it. That's why God gave these laws to the people of Israel and to us to read about and for us to think about is for us to come to the conclusion we need righteousness. We don't have it. We cannot do it. There's good news. It's called the gospel. Jesus has it. (laughs) All of it. And he wants to give it to you and to me. And so now the big question then remains is this. How do we get this righteousness? Because I don't know about you. Do you want it? Do you want to have that feeling of not just good enough, but perfectly enough every day? At least for yourself and and, and your heart towards others, but especially with God? Well, here's point number two, how we receive righteousness. Paul goes on in verses 15 and 16 and says, verses 15 and 16, let me read them to you. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. This is so awesome. So in these two verses, we see the second word, the second term, which is the word justify. And so again, got to see this. Paul is still preaching to Peter Peter here, he's still preaching to this room that's divided. He's preaching to us, yes, but he's still preaching to them. Look, he's going, we ourselves, guys, are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners like these guys over here. This is what he's doing. And so he's speaking to them and all those in earshot, and he's reaffirming the gospel truth that the works of the law, our own human righteousness, which is no righteousness at all, is not enough. It's not capable of making us right with God and that there is only one thing that will do this. There's only one thing that will make us right with God. We need, as he says here, Jesus' righteousness. We need faith in Christ. There's an interesting Greek word that's used there. We translate it often, in. 
It's actually the word ace, spelled E-I-S, and the word literally means into. It's like being poured into a bucket. It's like into. And so whenever you see this, because here's the problem. I have faith in Jesus. Right. I believe in Jesus. Like the, the demons believe in Jesus. The idea of into is, is that it's not just a, a fact. It's not a detachment. I'm in him. I have faith into. I have belief into Christ. And he is in me. This is a critical, critical point. So Paul, as you see in these verses, goes from the singular, he goes from a person to the we, the Jews and Gentiles in earshot, and then to no one, to the whole world. It's a beautiful picture that he presents for us here. Faith and belief in Christ alone is what justifies us. So justify or justification, a little definition theologically, terminology-wise, is this. It's basically a legal term. It's a term that refers to a person who is standing before the court of God's justice. It's a serious court. We're all going to be there one day. Before this court, in order to be found innocent, I, you, must be found to be perfectly righteous. Now, we've already established we're not. We know that. We don't even need the scripture to teach us that. We can just talk about it like we did and realize I have this desperate need for it. Why? Because I don't have it. So we know that we're not. We don't have it. But right now... I desperately need it as I stand before the judge. I need it. I am a sinner who stands guilty before a holy and righteous God. On that day, every knee will bow. Every knee will bow. Because his holiness and his righteousness and his power will be so evident. So how then can I justify myself to this God? what, what What do I throw out to the court to defend myself, to justify myself? Nothing. We've got nothing unless, unless, unless we have the good news. And this is the question and the dilemma that justification answers, and it is this. When we place our faith into Jesus Christ, an amazing transaction takes place. As we stand before that court, before that judge, his his opinion at that time goes, oh, wait a second. Yeah, you're innocent. You're innocent. I declare you innocent. He treats us as if, We have actually the same righteousness that his perfect son has. Exactly the same. No difference. He credits us, actually. The scripture teaches us. We we have a bankrupt account. We are so badly overdrawn, it's incredible, right? It's unbelievable. But he not only wipes out the debt, he gives us a surplus. That's unfathomable. More than we will ever need. Everything that his son has, he gives to us in total and complete abundance. The proper theological term for this is God imputes Christ's righteousness to us. So that what Jesus did through the cross, through the empty tomb, literally, not literally, but figuratively, we did too. This happened to us too. When Jesus died on the cross, God now looks at it this way. Yes, my holy, perfect, and righteous son died on the cross. So did you, Glenn. You died at that moment. You died the same death. Equally important, when he rose, Victoria over sin, death, and the cross, so did you in him. Not because of anything you've done, you've done, and nothing that you deserve, obviously, but that's it. So justification is the judicial act in which God pardons sinners, considering them righteous because of the righteousness of 
of Christ. When he justifies a sinner, God declares that as far as he's concerned, the sinner is now as righteous as his own son. Now, gosh, gosh, listen, grasp, do you grasp that? Come on, can you walk out of here today saying, I fully understand that? Woohoo! Listen, if you do walk out of here and you say that you fully grasp that, you will be completely transformed. And none of us are going to walk out of here today being able to say that. Amen? Come on. You have to grasp this. We have to think about this. Otherwise, we're never going to change. And the change isn't about us. It's about the gospel grasping us. Martin Luther tried to explain it this way, and I think his words are good. He says, because, right here as you see on screen, because you believe in me, this is God speaking, right? Because you believe in me, God speaking, and your faith takes hold of Christ, you're poured into Christ, and you're taking hold of him, whom I have given to you as your justifier and savior, therefore be righteous. Be righteous. Why? Because you are. I've made you righteous because of him. Thus God accepts you or imputes you righteousness solely on the count of Christ in whom you believe. I've been praying all week, struggling in my own mind, in my own heart, because I'm I know I don't look it, but I am 61. And I've known these facts for almost 40 years. I got to tell you guys, it's just taken a while to eke into my heart and to every aspect of my life. Does anyone else feel like that? What Jesus has done for us, guys, is so above and beyond. It's so remarkable. I'm really hoping today that the Holy Spirit will send us from here today going, oh my, oh my, what a Savior. What a Savior. But here again is our problem. It's the same problem that arised in that day, arose in that day. It arises today in our lives today. We hear this. We know it's the truth. It's so good. There's really nothing we can do to deserve this amazing gift of grace, this unmerited favor that God bestows upon us. We couldn't live the perfect life that Jesus did, and we certainly couldn't die and rise again from the dead because God wouldn't do that to unrighteous people, but he does it for his son. And this is the beauty of the gospel. It's just incredible to see this, that just like our Jewish friends, however, struggled in, with this in Antioch, we do today. We still, we hear all this, we believe that we can somehow still be righteousness or righteous in our own effort. We still do that. And the worst part of it is, is what we do is we, we forget that we have all of it, we have total forgiveness, that we are, we're not just good enough, we're best in God's eyes, we're perfect and beautiful and wonderful in God's eyes, and yet we still feel like we got to do something to feel good enough to feel accepted and approved by God. Amen? It just, it just seems to never go away. But that's the truth of the gospel. That's the beauty of what Paul is saying here. He's saying, stop it. <laughs> you don't have to do that anymore. You've got all of what God has in store for you. Well, now Paul's going to deal with a, a few objections. And so point number three is, I object, Your Honor. There are people who object to the grace of God. They just agree, object to what's teaching. And, and Paul knew this was happening in this day, that day. Look at verses 17 and 18. It says this, but if... Now, Paul, he's asking a question here. Look at this. But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Paul's a sharp cookie. He's, he knows they've got a question here. This is the question, the problem that the religious dudes have. 
They have a problem with this, and Paul sees this. He knows his audience, and he knows their objections even before they voice them. And that's why he says this. This is what what Tim Keller calls one of the two primary defeater beliefs that people have about Jesus and about the gospel. The two defeater beliefs are it's too easy and it's too hard. This is the too easy part. It's just too easy. That's their argument, and this is the way it goes. They're saying, so what you're saying is this. God just wipes away our debt. Right? He just makes it all go away, all the bad stuff. He makes it all go away, all of our guilt. It's like we never sinned or have never done anything wrong. Okay, so let me ask you this question. If that's the case, why should I stop sinning? See, there's no motive here. There's no, there's no motivation for me to stop sinning. So this is a dangerous doctrine, Paul, that you're teaching because it's like people are just going to go, well, you know, good. It's all been wiped out. And you know, I'll tell you what, people today, you know why they hate that a lot? They hate it. They, it's why they think this is too easy? It's because they look at the bad people in the world, the people that are badder than them, badder than you, badder than me, and they go, come on. Are you saying a heinous murderer? The Apostle Paul. You know, uh, prostitutes, drug addicts, the lowest of the low, people have done terrible things. Are you telling me that they can have their slate wiped clean by God? Yes, that's really good news, but it's too easy. And so what's Paul's answer to that? Certainly not, right? Certainly not, he says. Come on, what's wrong with you guys? How could you possibly think that, right? And so he goes on to say, certainly not, for if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. He's basically saying to them, he's going, guys, if I continue to sin after I've heard the good news of the gospel, after I've wrapped my arms around it, grasped it, after I've poured myself into Christ and I'm totally in him and he's totally in me, I'm the one at fault, not Jesus. Please don't be silly. I'm the one that's the loser here because I'm the one going on and continuing to sin. Certainly not. Certainly not. So for Paul, and I hope you will see today, this is classic proof that someone doesn't fully grasp or understand the gospel. Or put another way, hasn't been grasped and justified by the gospel themselves. As John Stott puts it, he says this, great pastor theologian, he says this, justification is not a legal fiction. Okay, It's not a legal fiction in which a man's status is changed while his character is left untouched. That's not the gospel. You're not saved if there's no change. Verse 17 says, we are justified in Christ. That is, our justification takes place when we are united to Christ by faith. Instead, he is changed. It is not just his standing before God which has changed. It is he or her himself. Radically, permanently changed. So we have to believe that. We have to believe into it. We have to have faith into it. But there must be change. There must be change. There must be a struggle at least. And Paul unpacks this beautifully here in the next two verses where he says this. In verses 19 and 20, he unpacks it. It's beautiful. He says, For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. 
So for Paul, and, and I think this should be true for us, to even think of going back to the old life of sin is completely incongruous to him. Now, does he struggle with sin? Of course he does. He confesses to it. He confesses to it. We all must confess to it. Of course, we struggle to it. But the idea of wanting to go back into it, it it just doesn't work. It's wrong. Paul believes he's a new creation in Christ and that he actually has a new life. Is he living out the new life? You betcha. (laughs) Clearly, he is. And we can't just put him up there and say, well, he's an apostle. Of course, he should be doing that. It's a little harder for me. No, it was pretty hard for him. And yet he was living it out perfectly. It's beautiful here. He demonstrates what it looks like by contrasting death and dying with resurrection and living. And in both of these cases, it's into Christ. It's into Christ. It's union with Christ in his death and resurrection that we share. And in verse 19, I love this. He says, I died to the law. I died to the law. This is key, and especially for those who might be his critics. They should have known, listen, they should have known in that day that the law uh, was, or the demand of the law, I should say, was death. If you were not able to keep even one aspect of the law, the law condemned you to death. Read the scripture. They should have known that. And so Paul is just saying that not only were they, was he dead to the law, if that was the basis of their justification before God, but also he's basically saying, I'm done with it. I'm done with the law, guys, and this is why you need to be done with the law, any kind of Jesus plus anything else to earn my salvation because it's wrong. It will not lead to righteousness and to our justice. So he says, I'm done with it. Many of you will know a famous Canadian reality TV show called Dragon's Den. Anybody? There's a U.S. version called Shark Tank. There is a character, speaking of scenes and screenplays, on both of those shows, whose name is Mr. Wonderful. Anybody know him? Yeah, apparently he thinks he's a politician today, but I won't go, with, I won't go there. But he has a famous line in that show where, you know, like if you come on as a contestant, right, and you're trying to get them to invest in your business, and he, he begins to engage you and begins to talk with you, and he starts going down that way with you, but he can't make a deal with you, or he ends up finding out that you're basically a twit and you don't know what you're doing. He has a famous line. Anybody, anybody know what that line is? It's not you're fired, that's the other guy. You're dead to me. That's what he says, right? It's pretty mean. And he wants to be, never mind. Um, That's what Paul means. That's what Paul means about the law. You're dead to me. In this way, please hear this. The law is not dead. It's dead to him as a means of righteousness and salvation. Amen? And it needs to be to us as well. Paul then leaves his critics with one parting shot. It's his last parting shot to his critics. It's awesome. I like the way Paul does this. It's kind of like, you know, I kind of have his personality sometimes. But anyway, he says this. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is a statement in response to an accusation. But it's also in response to what they're doing. Right? He says to them, look, I'm not the one negating, nullifying the grace of God. You are. You guys are the ones doing this. Because if what you're saying is that righteousness, uh, the righteousness we need but don't have comes from the law, well, then you're not only hopeless, you're saying that Jesus didn't need to die. Guys, do you not understand that? Friends, that's exactly what people are saying today who believe that they can attain their own righteousness by all the good that they do and all the things they're for and all the things that they're against. 
that they can earn righteousness in this world. And if there is a God, if, if there is a God, boy, I'll tell you, they'll read my Facebook feed and they'll see all the things I'm for and all the things I'm fit, uh, against, and he will then judge me righteous. No. Because what you're saying is Jesus didn't need to die for you because you don't have any righteousness and he has it all. So here's a great test for you today as we leave here today. As you speak to the next 20 people who you run into this week, who come across you in your life, in your daily routine, maybe watch for this. Will they be, because of the way you talk and the things that you talk about, start seeing you as righteous? As a good enough person or as a good person? Or do they see the one who has given you his righteousness? Now, let's be really clear here. This is really an important point to take home today. God, in justifying us, didn't make Glenn righteous. He didn't make any of you in this room righteous. He didn't make us righteous. He gave us righteousness. (laughs) And his name is Jesus Christ. And so the point is we are to reflect him, to re-image him to this world. I have no righteousness in and of myself. If there's anything that I'm right about, it's an accident. (laughs) Or it's because of Jesus. Amen? If I point to him, I point people to righteousness. So now, here's how we walk this out today. And never, ever, ever again, individually, oh boy, I hope this is true for me today. I don't know about you. Feel like that we're no longer good enough. Stop trying to be right. Okay, I'll try. Stop trying to be good enough in the eyes of everyone you meet and in your life. And instead, do this. Let's try this. Let's practice this this week. Let's just rest. Let's rest. Let's take a deep breath and rest, believing that in the eyes of the only one in the world who matters, we are perfectly righteous and perfectly good today. Now, on that basis, go and live the way, that way, by pointing everyone you know who is struggling, because every one of us is finding people who are struggling with being good enough, with being pretty enough, right? with being smart enough, certainly with being lovable enough, being healthy and wealthy enough, to the one who is the infinite source of all enoughness. It's my new word for righteousness. Let's point everybody to him today. He will fill their needs. And let's remember that the righteousness that we need but don't have is the same righteousness that they need but don't have. And it's only found in a right relationship with God. That's the gospel. Let's take that to people today. Pray with me, would you?